Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the investment bank for the creative digital economy. Today, Kindred Cast decamps to Englewood, Colorado, for an in-depth sit-down with Liberty Media Corporation President and CEO Greg Maffei, making his podcast debut. Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkov gets the scoop on the company's extensive portfolio, which includes subsidiaries Formula One, Sirius XM, and the Atlanta Braves, as well as an interest in Live Nation Entertainment. The Lion Tree team has advised Liberty on transactions with Charter Communications, Stars, and Sirius XM. From Maffei's first encounter with Liberty Media's chairman, Dr. John Malone, to the philosophy that drives the company's stellar performance, it's a fascinating conversation. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. I'm Arye Borkoff. I am pleased to be sitting here in Englewood, Colorado, at the Liberty Media headquarters with the president and CEO of Liberty Media, Greg Maffei. Greg serves now as president and CEO of Liberty Media Corporation, which owns media and entertainment businesses, including subsidiaries Formula One, Sirius XM, and the Atlanta Braves, and an interest in Live Nation Entertainment. He is president and CEO of Liberty Broadband Corporation, which consists primarily of his 25% voting stake in charter communications, as well as president and CEO of GCI Liberty, whose principal asset consists of its subsidiary, GCI, and interest in charter communications and Liberty Broadband. Greg also serves as chairman and CEO of Liberty TripAdvisor, which holds a controlling interest in TripAdvisor. In addition, Greg serves as executive chairman of Curate Retail, which owns digital commerce businesses, including subsidiaries QVC, HSN, Zulily, and the Cornerstone Brands. He also serves as chairman of the Liberty-related companies Live Nation Entertainment, SiriusXM, and TripAdvisor, and as a director of Charter Communications and Zillow. Prior to joining Liberty in 2005, Greg served as co-president of Oracle, chairman and CEO of 360 Networks, which was where we first met, and CFO of Microsoft. Last year, Liberty Media was ranked number seven in Fortune's 2019 World's Most Admired Companies in the Media Entertainment Industry. Greg, thank you for being here today, and I've been wanting to do this for a long time, so thank you for being on Kindred Cast. And you seem like you were getting a little bit tired and exhausted just hearing all these titles and responsibilities, but embedded within all of this is superior shareholder returns along the way and across the portfolio. Is that something you're proud of? I think that's why I'm still getting to sit in the chair. I referenced that we met during your uh, 360 Networks days a long time ago when I used to cover the bonds and you ran that company, which was a fiber company, generally speaking, like the old days. But even with Microsoft, I remember when you made the investment in Comcast in 1997, which was a billion-dollar investment in the cable business, you were sort of the first to bring the technology industry together with the media industry and the cable industry in that respect a very long time ago. When I was at Microsoft, we were very interested in what the cable industry was doing to build out high-speed data, build out the high-speed internet. Bill Gates and I spent a bunch of time with a lot of people in the cable business, including Brian Roberts of Comcast, including John Malone. It's really when I first met him back in 93. We tried to sell them set-top boxes. We tried to drive a lot of things. We were very interested in what they were doing with that home, which was the primary vehicle, another one, Roadrunner, which are the primary consortium vehicles to build out that high-speed data. And eventually... Brian Roberts is the one who said, look, if you want to help us, you should put money in all the cable companies. But the only one who really stepped up and wanted our money initially, we we did a bunch more, was Brian. So then we ended up buying 7% of Comcast, and I was an observer on the board. 
So that was really my first exposure to cable. Yeah, it was a real catalyst. I remember for evaluations starting to rise again and people's uh, concerns being alleviated about what the future of cable could be. It seems like it's a perpetual theme, right? When you have these traditional media businesses that are always counted out in the age of technology and innovation and disruption, and all of a sudden you have a real endorsement and it sustains itself in broadband and everything else. Obviously, there are examples that went the other way, like newspapers and other things. You know, we were lucky twice, or I've been lucky twice, to catch the right cycle. We did very well in that Comcast investment, rode it up on the growth of high-speed data. And then really, again, when we did Charter in 2013, sort of caught, if not a bottom, a near bottom on the industry. It's accelerated since. Yeah. Is that the way that you think about investing and think about buying companies? Is that you're somewhat counter-cyclical? Because obviously, given your perch and your history in the industry, you could have expertise in any number of areas. So how do you prioritize it? What do you think about what drives your successes and your approach? I wish we were that systematic or organized. Yeah, you definitely have to have a thesis, and oftentimes it's got to be tacking against conventional wisdom because conventional wisdom gets valued to the max, and if you're following along, that's a really hard place to be. It may work for a while in a kind of momentum play, but it's hard to sustain. So finding things that are out of favor is certainly a good place to start and doesn't mean it'll necessarily get back into favor, but it's a good place to look. I can also speak to the other side. It doesn't matter how clever you were in emerging telecom in the early 2000s when I was running 360. When the capital goes away and when the trend blows up on you, you're going to have a lot of problems. All the emerging telecom companies did. But when you think back to your career, I mean, it is a unique path, right? And obviously, we'll get to the liberty part of your career now, but when you think back at your evolution as an executive and as an investor. What do you point to to be sort of like those key moments where you got to be really good at your craft? And obviously it's a humbling experience every single day, but how do you think back at your path and and why is it unique and differentiated versus others? (laughs) Again, I'm not sure there's a systematic thing. I've tried to keep my doors open, but I know I've also gotten just incredibly lucky, you know, to be at Microsoft at the right time and place to move when I was early from Dylan Reed over to Citicorp Venture Capital eventually get out to Seattle to get to know John Malone and for him to decide I was the right person to come here where there was a lot of things that were available to fix initially. We got some early wins and to have the perch. So Microsoft needed my skill set at the time. They really didn't have it. Uh, Liberty could use my skill set, but I could have ended up someplace where a lot of smart people could have filled that role or I could have ended up someplace where your skill set wasn't necessarily so highly valued. So there's a lot of luck in all this. You're, you're selling yourself short by saying it's all luck. You know, I look back at my business school class, a lot of smart men and women, smarter than I am or accomplished, who didn't necessarily end up by at least some metrics having the same level of success. To some degree, that's the luck of where did they end up, where did I end up, and what was needed at the time when we ended up at that spot. Right. Well, let's talk about how you got to Liberty then. So Dr. John Malone needed a CEO of Liberty Media. How did that come about and what came to be where it was attractive to you? I had known John since 93. And he'd actually been on the board of 360 Networks and an investor in 360 Networks. And I'd lost all his money there, but he still talked to me. (laughs) He said I was good at generating tax losses. In early 2005 or mid-2005, I got a call from a mutual friend of ours who said, John Malone wants you to come be CEO of Liberty. Do you want to talk to him? And you were at Oracle at the time? I was at Oracle. Mm -hmm. I'd only been at Oracle like three months. I said, sure, I'd like to talk to John. I mean, I'd known him, you know, for I think 12 years at that point, he'd served on board company I ran. So I knew him reasonably well. And we'd actually talked in the past about various ways we might work together. So John calls me and says, know anybody who could be good to run Liberty? And I thought he was going to call about me. I 
So I said, oh, nothing comes right to mind. When you think about it, I'll give you some names. And, uh, so I called the mutual friend back and said, well, he, he called me, but he didn't want my name. He was asking for other names. So, and the friend said, no, Very he tactical. wants you. He yeah. wants you. He's just playing with you. <laughs> then he called back and said, ah, yeah, no, maybe you'd be the guy. So that was pretty funny. Well played. So what happened? So I joined in uh, November of 2005. As I said, there was, I think, a bunch of relatively low-hanging fruit of things to fix and clean up. And, it, you know, in any job, it's always good some early wins because it gives you credibility to make bigger bets. Yeah. Did you have a, an understanding with John when you became CEO of how you both would divide the responsibilities and, or were you just all in it together? <laughs> yeah, you were giving us a lot more credit. Than, than, <laughs> I think the only thing I remember is John in his offer letter to me sent something like, the future is what you make it or something like that. It was a pretty open canvas. And if you look, nobody would have predicted the enormous change when I joined in 05 to today, what Liberty looks like. And nobody would have predicted where we would go. Right. No, neither John nor I, nobody. But was there a mandate? Was there a, a vision or an objective? Or again, it was more of a two smart people getting together and trying to make the right investments. Look, I think John appreciated I'd come out of the technology side and had some familiarity with that. In 05, if you want to look like a relatively technically strong person coming out of Microsoft, helped compared to being traditional media players. I certainly wouldn't have put myself up as a technology expert, but on a relative basis, that was helped. Yeah. Well, plus you understood, I feel like, capital structure and CFO-like dynamics, which would help with tax and shareholder value and not just strategic deal-making. When I was at Microsoft, we did all these uh, put warrants. We were buying our stock back and we were selling puts against it. And it was sort of a, we knew we had a big tailwind and we made a, a bunch of money on those put warrants. And it's because it's in your own stock, it's tax-free. John loved that. It was fascinated with that. So John used to always say the put warrant guy or something like that. He was always <laughs> happy because that's a John Malone kind of play. Yeah. Well, how should we think about Liberty Media? I mean, because from the outside looking in, just taking a eagle in the sky perspective for a second, it's unclear whether Liberty Media is a public private equity firm that just happens to invest in media assets, or it's a media operating company, or it's a leveraged bet on the industry. What is Liberty Media and how should we benchmark it? Or is it just a unique animal altogether? Look, I think you could say it's all three of those things. In various times, it's molted. When I first got here, we really owned very few assets in total. I think QVC was the only one we have any scale. We had a bunch of minority positions and we've actually swapped for control or more influential positions, bought our way into more influential positions over time. We'd like to think we've tried to do it in this parts of the industry with our history as a company, with John's vision, with John's expertise and contacts. You know, we've had some insights into perhaps where we thought things would do better and where we thought would get worse and been able to, you know, trade our way out of those hopefully in an efficient manner or trade our way in to the good ones. And so that's been somewhat of a bet on the best parts of media we'd like to think from where we could actually make progress. You'd love to be in some of these places, but either you can't get in in any smart way. So it's not like it's an obvious bet to buy the stock, but we've tried to molt the thing to more operating assets, being happy also to be in places where we have a influential position, but on the right side of where the trends are. Mm -hmm. And it's effectively like a fund where you're entrusted to make investments from the public and obviously for yourselves, transferring you know, capital into operating assets that generate a strong return and then not being sacred about them in the sense of when it's time to sell, you'll also exit instead of just building an empire, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's fair. We've been willing to get out of things, hopefully smart decisions about when to exit. You know, some media companies have tended to stay in because they've had historical reasons they want to be in or familiar reasons or the like. 
if you compare us to a private equity firm, which you mentioned and others have, we're different in some ways. We have permanent capital. We have you know, long duration decisions, ability to make those because we're, if not controlled, heavily influenced by John, we have an ability to go for the long term that's beyond the range of most companies and certainly most private equity firms. The offset to that is we are taxed at the corporate level. That's made us very tax aware. Mm-hmm. That's also inhibited our ability to go in and out. If you could just be in something for two years and pass the gains out to your LPs as a private equity firm, you could be doing a great job for them. It's probably less attractive, particularly when the corporate tax rate with state and local was approaching 40%, you were giving away a lot of profits. Today, it's a 25-ish for us. That's still punitive, but it's not quite as bad. We've got to think about the long-term. We've got to think about if we're going to ever exit, what way can we get exit out of it in a tax-efficient way? So we have both strengths and weaknesses compared to those kind of private equity players. Yeah. Since 2005, can you give me a sense of what the returns have been for the Liberty entities that you oversee? Well, Liberty Media, which is sort of the core if we tracked since 2005 and we showed our investor day, it's I think in the 24, 25% compounded range. Every year on average. Yeah. If you had to pinpoint it overall, because there's some pattern recognition and thematics here after that period of time. Do you think that's attributed to be the fact that you buy well at the right time? You have the right timing in terms of secular shifts and getting ahead of it. You're structuring in financial engineering, the trackers, the capital structures, the tax work, or the post-deal execution and operating management. I mean, what's the weighting of the answer to the question of why the returns are so healthy over time and consistent? There's a certain kind of business models we like, we tend towards, and we think they're pretty durable. A lot of them are subscription oriented. You mentioned trying to be on the right side of trends. And we've gotten out of some things that we thought were going to get more competitive on command. We spun off and we're lucky enough that AT&T took us out of direct TV at the right time. Stars, getting out of stars at the right time. But a lot of it's also getting in. We, we mentioned earlier about getting into charter at a relatively low multiple, and those have expanded as them. It's become more of a broadband business. We got into Sirius at the right time. You know, the other thing is we've, I think, done well at is finding the right management teams and providing the right set of incentives where it's long-term orientation, equity orientation, strong managers and strong players, whether that be Jim Meyer at Sirius XM or Tom Rutledge at Charter or Michael Rapino at Live Nation. You get on the list of people who've done very well for us, attracting Chase Carey at Formula One, finding a way to keep powerful, strong leaders in the fold and feel like they have both the right amount of autonomy and the right amount of support, but also, you know, are aligned with our goals, our aim of long-term shareholder growth. You know, I think that's been a part of our success too. So what is the culture of Liberty Media when you're inside the company here and you work for Greg Maffei, you're looking at deals, you're assessing portfolio companies and returns. What's the culture like internally? Is it tough is it hardworking? Is it like a private equity firm or a hedge fund where it's all about your performance every single day? What's it like inside? You may have to ask the people who work with me for me. You try to set the, by example, we're hopefully tough-minded, but we're not necessarily a tough culture. We're certainly not saying, oh, what's your P&L every day? We have the benefit, the luxury of taking that long-term perspective, and hopefully that allows us to make good decisions. You know, we had a director several years back who once said something like, yeah, well, we should find out who worked on every bad deal. You know, if they have a bad deal, we should fire them. Fortunately, that person is no longer a director because it's just the wrong mentality. You, you're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You need to make mistakes. You, if you're not stretching, if you're not making mistakes, now hopefully you don't make them on big things. You make them on little ones. We've had a bunch of bad deals. Knock on wood on this table's not wood. We have no real failures on the big deal side. We only have failures on the little deal side. And uh, that's, you know, saved us a lot. They're decent size. They're not turned out perfectly, but you know, basically the big ones have run. 
we've been able to think about it and concentrate risk. That's another differentiating point compared to private equity where we can concentrate and make a bigger bets than a private equity firm. And, you know, we don't have to make 20 bets, actual risk. We're making one or two bets a year of scale. Yeah. I asked about if you're working at Liberty, what's the culture? If you're a CEO of a company that's about to be acquired by Liberty, what can they expect once they get inside of the Liberty Media structure? What would you tell them? We're going to want to hopefully be helpful, not necessarily in a meddling way, but involved in a positive way around some of the strategy, around some of the capital markets decisions, around some of the M&A decisions and around the, some of the decisions on setting up comp and setting up incentives. But basically, we're going to let you run your business. You know, I think one of the things we do is positive is don't ask me, put them in touch with those other CEOs and say, okay, what's the relationship been like? I don't listen to Greg or John tell me what it's like. Uh, you, Michael Rapino can tell me what it's been like. Or you, Jim Meyer, can tell me what it's been like. That's a far more probably true way for them to to set up and understand what they're going to be dealing with. I've always said like one of the hallmarks of John Malone, I would say also applies to you now, is the ability to attract a lot of high quality CEOs under the portfolio at the same time. And whether you're talking about Michael Rapino or Tom Rutledge or you said Jim Meyer and others, you have everyone in the portfolio that have distinct responsibilities, but all with a sort of drive to success for shareholders. And you don't see that in other sort of portfolio companies. One of the reasons we have the structure we have is to give them autonomy. And I mean that in a lot of ways when we are very small, relatively corporate level organization here and at the home office in Inglewood is, uh, Dave Letterman used to say, we have uh, 80 people doing, you know, includes the tax department and public reporting and uh, the flight department. So that's, uh, you know, we got our priorities right. We don't either have the arms and legs nor the motivation nor setup to go out and try and manage these guys, these men and women. We want them to be incented. We want them to have autonomy. I think I mentioned before, that's been a positive flywheel. You attract good CEOs, you motivate them, they do well. And a lot of our CEOs have done very well economically. It's easier to attract the next one. The story around things like Chase Carey, we control DirecTV. You know, we owned 58% of it uh, and Chase was the CEO. Chase eventually left, went back. He'd come from News Corp, eventually 21st Century Fox, went back there. And I remember telling him for three years, I have your next job. And I knew we were working around Formula One. And if we could get it, I wanted him to be the CEO. And, you know, the fact we were able to attract him back, somebody with his capabilities, his reputation, his prior history of success, but also the fact he'd been with us once already. He knew what he was getting into. He wasn't coming to Liberty sight unseen. He'd already overseen DirecTV in his role there for four years or five years. So that's additive and it's a positive flywheel. Yeah. I'm going to get to uh, some of the industry themes shortly. I want to get your perspective of it as it relates to your perspective and your portfolio companies. One of the most sought after and anticipated events of the year is your investor day. It's unique and you bring your public companies together and it's a highlight for many of the research analysts and uh, investors and, and myself included. How does that come together and why the attention to the scale sort of showcase of your perspective of the industry and what happens? I know they have a lot of clips from this last year. Tell me about um, how it comes together. It's funny. You asked, who are we? What are we? A PE firm, a Holdco or whatever. You know, in some ways, we have followed the, the measure of Berkshire Hathaway, which is if you have a bunch of portfolio companies or interesting and you give the opportunity to bring them all together... And some of them who are smaller may not get the same opportunity to see investors the way as if we draw that group. So there's a positive in bringing the mass. And we are one of the few media companies that can bring so many high-level CEOs in one place that drew us to that kind of a day. 
And we have tried to add a couple other elements. We've tried to add some fun. We've had these skits. I think we started out with a top 10 list or something, and it kept expanding. Courtney Chun and Shane Kleinstein in the IR department have uh, just tried to outdo themselves each time, and they've been a big driver of it. And you're a willing participant. <laughs> you know, I actually have sometimes even kickstarted it to my own embarrassment later. <laughs> and then the other thing is we've tried to put our own perspective on top. We not only want the CEOs there, we want to say, why is Liberty where Liberty is? And to some degree, put out our themes and what we care about, where we think we're going and why investors should care or why investors should follow or not be surprised if that's where we go because we don't, there's no upside in that. That's been the goal is to bring our high quality CEOs have a little levity, have some fun, and then also really to provide some themes. Yeah, and provide a narrative to why we're doing this and why you're making these investments, not just a one-off transaction, but how it all fits together. Exactly. And I think that's really how Liberty has evolved. As you mentioned, it used to be an investment company, effectively, without really operating assets. And now it's pretty clear that you have these two verticals of audio and sports that you really can kind of operate behind and do business and deals around. You have others as well, like we talked about TripAdvisor, we talked about Curate, et cetera. But audio is a big theme for you. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that because a lot of players in the industry are driving towards video. I mean, there's a hundred streaming services out there. It's all video all the time. And you've gone the other way back to kind of old school audio, which is more than just podcasting, what we're doing today has a lot to do with music and, mm -hmm. and audience and viewership patterns. So tell me about the audio theme. Well, I think a couple of things. You'd start out by mentioning that we've been critical of the scripted content space. You know, there's a lot of capital being poured in by some estimates, $100 billion a year. How are people going to get a return on that? Particularly if you have the traditional video model of being a cable net, very challenged because the newer models, whether it be Netflix, who's got a more efficient model, can bring more capital to bear, or whether it be even more scarily, perhaps, the technology companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, who have different monetization schemes, different ways to get paid and don't necessarily have to have the content be the monetization engine itself. That does not bode well in our judgment for long-term returns in the content space, scripted content. So you stay away from that. We got out of stars. We started talking about this three or four years ago. Now it's sort of everybody's theme, but we were lucky enough to get out in front of a lot of it. Yeah, your tagline at the investor day was audio, Liberty still loves you. We've been in audio for a while, back to Sirius XM, you know, our investment in Live Nation, which is a little different kind of audio. Audio is obviously important as well as another theme, live events. We've added to that with Pandora. We've also been critical at various times of the multiplicity of streaming content companies because of the relative leverage of the record companies versus those streamers. And we tried to talk about the differentiation of audio. And that's why Sirius XM with its many kinds of content with its substantially better business model being protected by DMCA, the regulatory regime is yeah. way better. But we've also tried to say, look, there's an explosion of audio. The trends are going the right way. If you actually look what's happening in the United States, video has somewhat peaked. There's actually been a slight decline in video per hour. While it had a massive explosion and a lot of it's moved from TV to online content, you actually have had a modest decline where audio, we would argue, has a lot of upside. There are more places you can put audio today than ever whether it be in the car with connected cars, whether it be the explosion of devices like AirPods, or whether it be smart speakers, all those just opening up audio opportunities. There are also more audio opportunities during the day, whether it be at work or other places where it'd be difficult to use video, car obviously, some cases working out. All those are opening up new kinds of audio opportunities as well as the new devices. And with that, there's new kinds of audio content. So music today is maybe 75% of all listening, but there's an explosion of new kinds of content 
whether it be podcasts like this or whether it be talking books or whether it be just talk radio in general, which has obviously been a strength of Sirius XM for a long time. All those are just growing quickly and creating more depth because you may want to listen to music all the time or you may want to listen to music part of the time and another parts of the day you want something else. There's also been explosions of different kinds within each of those new kinds of content. There's the audio things that'll walk you through cooking dinner. There audio through almost any topic. So just the multiplicity of kinds of ranges. All that saying is audio is growing. In addition, audio has two benefits that scripted doesn't necessarily have as clearly. One is the cost structure to, to put on a podcast. A good podcast for a year might cost as little as $250,000. Yeah. We're in a world where it could be $10 million for an hour of scripted content or more, $15 million, $20 million for an hour of scripted content. For video, yeah. For video. Yeah. The cost structures are way less. The monetization opportunity, particularly at least on the ad side, is growing. So the trends are actually positive. Ads are less skipped, particularly if it's in a talking book and the author is reading it, if it's embedded. There's just a lot of flexibility there. And the CPMs are relatively low and growing. So a lot of trends, both on the revenue side and the cost side, for the business model of things like podcasts. Well, do you think that Liberty is well-positioned in that area then for audio? Because the way you're describing it, it's almost like audio is a share shift game versus video, which is oversaturated in my words. Or is it the fact that just the pie is growing and plenty of room and then therefore Liberty has a great situation just to grow forward-looking? Look, I don't think video is in decline. I just don't think video is as much parts of the day upside. Yeah. And I already mentioned all these big players fighting for their share. In audio... The players are far smaller through Sirius. We're a seriously large player <laughs> by many measures. Sirius XM, even with the universal print at that large number from Tencent, we are the largest audio company in terms of enterprise value. We make more money at Sirius XM than any other audio company. So we have a great platform where people are used to using that. Certainly we have challenges around that. We're a between Pandora and Sirius, we're only US-based. Mm-hmm. And you know this could be a worldwide business, but we have a lot of advantages. And as I said, the primary one is the trends are going the right way in terms of growth in our judgment. The competition is less, and we're a big player, if not the biggest player. So all those say I compare the scripted side to this side. I like this side, yeah. audio. Who do you feel is your biggest competitor in audio? Is it Spotify? Well, there are a lot of people playing, and Spotify's one. iHeart has gone out and bought some podcasts. You know, we're not necessarily head-to-head on everything, but there are a lot of people playing here. But again... But you're an investor in iHeart. We're a small investor in iHeart. Those companies are both smaller than SiriusXM by many measures. Spotify may have more subscribers, but it has less revenues, less profits. If we were playing over in the scripted videos, we're a pimple. We're yeah. tiny. The last announcement I saw out of your audio strategy was your investment in SoundCloud. Yep. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit, because I don't think the market has generally heard about the thesis there. Uh, I think there are a couple things. SoundCloud is a very interesting company for a bunch of reasons on its own. It really has a strategy which has multiplicity of revenue streams, not only subscription dollars and ad dollars, which I'll mention in a minute why the ad's important particularly, but also authoring tools for people who want to get their music up online, hosting their music, helping them do it, helping them expose their music. On the audio side, we are their monetization partner through our ad monetization schemes. So we had a good and growing and positive relationship with SoundCloud. I think Kerry Trainer's team, very able. They are a worldwide player with a slightly different angle than us, probably a slightly different audience than us. They skew much younger. It's an audience-driven platform, right? Effectively, it goes around the labels. They also have the part where they're in, maybe historically had some issues with the labels, but now are in compliance with the labels and you know license with the labels. But it's the one-offs, the differentiated content they have. A lot of it done by relative unknowns. You know, my uh, 16-year-old, 17-year-old now, 
He said it when he was 16. Would no more listen to Pandora. That's an old people's company. Well, SoundCloud's a young people's company. There are 30, 35 million tracks on Pandora. There are 100 million plus tracks on SoundCloud because a lot of it is one-offs and differentiations or this venue and this style. That multiplicity appeals to a lot of young people. And so it opens up a new audience for we're not as familiar with and we'll see where SoundCloud goes. I've heard you described as the king of audio, whether it's in the Billboard magazine write-up, which was a great profile of your strategy here, or in other articles. Obviously, you're going to be more humble about it today, but given that perch and the perspective, what do you want to do with the platform really ultimately? Is there more to do with the audio platform or do you have all the right set of assets? We're a continually changing vehicle, as I mentioned. So who knows where it all goes? I think we have a great set of assets and I've already talked about why I think audio has a great runway and it doesn't have to be a winner take all or we can prosper and others can prosper too. I think our ability to try and integrate some of these different pieces we have and leverage them to the benefit of consumers unique content that Live Nation has getting distributed more widely, unique content that Sirius has getting some of that out there on either SoundCloud or Pandora. All those are opportunities that are good and reaching new audiences, as I mentioned, Sirius and Pandora. Sirius skews older than Pandora, which skews older than SoundCloud. Yeah. And where does iHeart fit into it? Obviously, it's a minority investment. It's passive. It's well run by a public company, Bob Pittman and Rich Bressler. What's the rationale for the iHeart investment? They have a tremendous reach, but is that how you're thinking about it? It seems like a traditional business on the radio side. Yeah, I think tremendous reach, some opportunity to expose content more broadly, some opportunity to perhaps convert some of those free users, free listeners into subscription, higher valued subscribers on either Sirius or Pandora, relatively financially attractive valuation. And you mentioned a great management team, Bob Pittman and Rich Bressler, guys we've known a long time, have a lot of respect for what they're doing. And a great podcasting business. And they have a great podcasting business. Well, let's move from audio now to sports because the Formula One deal was a notable transaction. It's a global iconic brand. I think in one of my conversations with John about F1, and this obviously came from your strategy, he mentioned that he loves it because you can own the sport holistically. It's not like you're leasing content from others. So talk about the deal the strategy and how that's the cornerstone of your sports business. One of our investor days, John says, yeah, sports is like cocaine. You just get addicted. And I said, yeah, so we're converted from being a user to a dealer <laughs> by owning Formula One because we now are in the business of selling out sports. Look, it's a great global brand. Bernie Ecclestone did an amazing job building it up 70 years ago, consolidating the disparate players into one league, which really is the premier motorsports league by a mile reputations it has around technology, glamour, all those things are positive. It's just the passion people have for the sport is incredible, yeah. And truly global. Unlike your audio strategy, which you say is very U.S.-centric, this is a very global brand. Absolutely. We saw an opportunity because the brand had probably been a little bit moribund, had not really pursued a digital strategy, didn't really have a social media strategy, didn't really have any of those things. We saw opportunities around growing sponsorship, broadening that. We saw opportunities around updating many things that happen around hospitality and around the fan experience. I think Chase and his team, Sean Bratches, Ross Braun, talking about Ross, who runs the motorsports side, doing things to try and level the playing field in terms of creating more on-track competition and on excitement and overtaking. We saw an opportunity in all those things, and they've done made great progress on those. Where else does your sports strategy go then? Is it just F1-centric and all the operating challenges and areas of opportunity that you can focus on there, or is it a broader portfolio and platform? Well, we have other sports assets, including the Atlanta Braves. Yep. We actually have small minority positions in the Nuggets and the Avalanche here in Denver. 
But the Braves has been a great success. You mentioned our sports theme. I think I would tie that also with a live events theme. Some degree you see that at Live Nation. To some degree you see that at Formula One. But you definitely see that also at the Braves, where the management team there, Terry McGurk and his team, Derek Schiller, have done a great job, Mike Plant, of building out not just a new stadium, but building out a whole real estate development called the Battery, which leverages the experience of the sports and it makes it in a, a place which is not just for the 81 home games of a baseball season, but many other kinds of events, music events, just social dining events all year round. We've been able to make that a much broader play than just saying, I'm going to a baseball game. To some degree, we're trying to do some of the same things around improving the experience at concerts. To some degree, we're trying to do the same things around improving the experience at a Formula One race, broadening it, extending it, making you come for a longer period of time than just the race, just the game. And it's a revenue opportunity for us. So you mentioned, obviously, that Live Nation and live events, it really could fit either way. I mean, it trades as part of the FWONK, F-W-O-N-K entity with Formula One, but it really could be part of the SiriusXM Pandora audio strategy, or it could be part of the event Formula One sports strategy, so to speak. So synergistic, we didn't know where to put it. No, yeah, <laughs> there's clearly elements of both. I agree. Yeah, well, how do you think about Live Nation's positioning and Mike Rapino long-term? Done a great job. Been a great run. We bought a bunch of our stock back. We inherited some. We bought a bunch more back in 2011, early 12 for, I think, $9 a share today at 75 so we're pretty happy. Michael's taken share left and right. He's created a technology advantage in that his app caters both to the venues, the Ticketmaster side, but is a way better experience for the consumer on the Live Nation side, the ability to have both primary and secondary tickets on one app, whether you're buying them from the venue or you're buying them from third parties, transfer them digitally. Greatly improved experience, ability to take his leverage in terms of his scale and create opportunities around sponsorship that really are unique. His ability to take his scale and leverage it to go to tours and to bands and say, hey, I can handle you globally in a way that no one else can. Now, in every market here or there on the tour, there may be a local promoter you have to involve, but we have an opportunity to provide as much of a one-stop solution as anybody on the earth. Far better. Credit to Michael and leveraging all of those elements. So let me get to broadband. You know, one of our themes for the year at LionTree, as we've talked about the industry and our perspective of the industry, is scale players in motion. Meaning that over the last 10 years, there's been a huge amount of disruption and new technology companies emerging to disrupt the traditional players. But those that have kind of climbed the mountain and gotten to the top of having scale in this environment and overcome a lot of that disruptive forces or played into it the right way, are now in place, but not fully formed yet. And scale from here and motion from here among the large players like yourself is going to be very critical. Not necessarily a clash of the titans, but it's the moment for scale players to really see what they want to do with it. Look, scale's a funny thing. I mean, you try and clearly have advantages of consolidation, and there are. Mm-hmm. You might think that Charter with a $175, $185 billion enterprise value has got scale, but you know that's all relative. You're seeing... Apple and Microsoft up at a trillion four, trillion three, trillion five, called close behind by Facebook, Google, Amazon. So scale is kind of relative. We are a scale player in the broadband business because of the quality of that HFC plant, because of the opportunity to upgrade to Doxus 3.1 relatively seamlessly and provide a good broadband or an excellent broadband experience at marginal cost. We have a lot of advantages. But scale is all relative. We may be kind of a scale player in music, but go over to the scripted content space where you're a pimple. Yeah. So you got to pick your spots. And it's not just having dollars, it's having true advantages. Yep. And in the case of Charter, that's coax cable into the home, 
into the small and medium businesses is a very valuable property. And yeah, we've seen our ability to change that over time, move from a video business, high-speed data business, really grow. For a while, voice over IP was great. And now continued growth of high-speed data where we really do have in most markets the best solution from a technological perspective, the ability to offer consumers something, but now move into an opportunity to also bundle that with mobile, some of it being offloaded on networks and filling in with an MVNO relationship with Verizon today, mobile virtual network operator relationship. You know, you've been able to molt and find new ways to provide value with that pipe. What I was really referring to is the underpinning of all of these assets is connectivity. Yep. And having an appreciation for the broadband connectivity, which really powers all of this. Some of the misnomer around the video streaming companies is that it really requires a broadband underpinning to really support the video ecosystem like it always has. Yep. You have that in the stake in charter communications, which is not only a broadband company, but it's obviously a video gateway, some voice features, other forms of innovation, mobile, et cetera. But what is the charter story of the way that Liberty looks at it? Is it a strategic asset? Is it an operating asset? Is it a financial asset? The stock has obviously done very well since you did that deal. I think the entry point you had was on a split-adjusted basis around 105 per share. Yep. Now it's a 570, 580, depending on the day per share. So a really great run. What is the thesis for Charter from a Liberty perspective? You know, when we put that money, initial money in 13, we were betting on some of the fundamental changes that are happening. The move, as you pointed out, from video to broadband is a uh, way more attractive business for cable companies. The continued efficiencies that are being brought by new reduced cost of connectivity with that DOCSIS 3.1 upgrade, all those were positive. And you'd gone from being an arguably poorly run company to a, becoming a very well-run company under Tom. We also saw it as an acquisition platform. Tom clearly had that desire. Tom Rutledge. Tom Rutledge, the CEO. And hopefully we were helpful to him in accelerating that desire, putting in incremental capital, endorsing the bet when we combined with Time Warner Cable and Bright House, increased from roughly four to five million connectivities to now 26 million passing, 52 million passings, um, you know, out of whatever, 120 million homes in the United States. So a lot of reach to your point. Yeah, I don't think that those deals, having been right alongside you during the Time Warner Cable and Bright House deals, could have happened without Liberty's endorsement and involvement. Charter was a small player. John Malone, Liberty's history in the business was probably a help. And the fact we stepped up for $5 billion of capital. Right. So we saw not only the just generally positive trends around broadband, but the opportunity for consolidation. And that's paid off very well. What we probably didn't recognize to the degree, you always want to have hopefully things that are go right, opportunity to go right. A lot of things haven't happened as well as we want. You know, we didn't gain as many video subs. We've seen probably a relative collapse of uh, business pricing in the small and medium business markets. The deal has still been enormously successful because as this business has moved from being a video-oriented business, which at least in the investor's mind and the consumer's mind, to truly a broadband business, you've seen a re-rate of the multiple. You've seen a massive improvement in free cash flow. One of the real changes, and those are two tied thoughts, the re-rate and the change in free cash flow. John Malone's been in the cable business since the 60s and took over TCI in the early 70s and He'd always say, yeah, the story about cable was always free cash flow next year. Right, CapEx this year. CapEx this year. <laughs> you know, it's really changed. Charter's taken its CapEx as a percent of revenue from low 20s as it was investing to upgrade its plant to all digital down into the low teens, mid to low teens, and that change in free cash flow and then using a levered share model. But first, just the change in free cash flow has totally changed investor perspective. It really is a massive free cash flow generator. You are far less vulnerable to what the content guys want to charge you 
you're buying network gear from many players at relatively low prices, declining prices. Scale benefits. Scale benefits, Moore's Law benefits, learning curve benefits, all of it, very positive. And with that change in free cash flow, we've applied a business model, we charter, which Liberty's endorsed, of leverage share repurchase, you know, running four to four and a half times leverage and using the gain in free capital, the growth in free capital and the growth in EBITDA by relevering to buy back shares. I've retired a lot of the stock to great benefit. Yeah, and the cable business has always been valued off of an EBITDA metric and multiple, but it sounds like we're at that moment where it could be a free cash flow multiple from here on out. Well, that's actually a great point. If you look, the EBITDA multiple has clearly gone up. You know, we got in at something like nine times and it's 10 or a half or 11 times or how you look at it. But actually the free cash flow multiple hasn't risen nearly as much because free cash flow has risen more quickly than the EBITDA growth. I do think you're going to see these continue to be re-rated. One of our board members, Eric Zinnerhofer, who used to be the chairman, is lead independent, says, you know, why are these not rated like tower companies? Because you have an infrastructure play that deserves much more multiple. So we'll see. Yeah. You look at companies, and you mentioned earlier that you're not sacred about assets. You look at investments that went from $105 per share to the high 500s, a natural view would be, why not take profits? And that's it. What are you really going for here if this return's not good enough for you? And there are some challenges out there, like 5G is coming, people think. You may think it's overhyped. If Hans Vestberg was here from Verizon, he would dispute that and say it's here today, and 5G all the time. So do, and, how do you feel with the And I would ask Hans, really, can I walk down and get my 5G phone, and what part of Denver will it work in? Because I think the answer is no and no, zero. But okay. <laughs> so you just count that threat. I think you see changes in technology. You want to be on the right side of those trends. There's many ways in which Charter could be advantaged by 5G as it threatens it. How it all plays out, we'll see. I do think it will take longer to play out than certainly the market was suggesting a year ago. You're seeing a little bit of the disillusionment or reality check come in, push out of C-band and how it's actually working, attenuation, all these issues that probably get solved, but it's not going to come in and get done in a week. But technology changes, particularly 5G, are one of our risks there. And if we have a change in administration, potentially around regulation, every business has risks. That having been said, I'm very comfortable that we have several more good years, big tailwind at Charter. Charter, absolutely. Happy investor from here. Happy investor. We have not sold a share. And as they've continued to do share purchases, we've grown our percentage of the company dramatically. Yeah. I want to turn to the travel industry for a minute because it's an area... It's getting a lot of focus, not just because of fundamental trends, but also things like the coronavirus that's affecting a lot of businesses out there that are global, but certainly the travel industry is exposed to it as well. Are you happy with the TripAdvisor investment and the fundamentals and the macro environment has changed around you given the Google exposure and the algorithm changes, et cetera? So is it a structurally sound business? How do you think about where travel could go from here? Well, I'm certainly not happy with it. Our really big investments have paid off. This one's certainly one that hasn't. We are, as you rightly point out, in a challenged world. We have an enormous amount of users, 475 million unique visitors a month who come to the site. TripAdvisor is truly a trusted brand, which adds value to them. Historically, we, through the MetaSearch process, gave them hotel alternatives and got paid for that lead. That business has fundamentally been challenged. That method of monetization, because we're no longer as much top of the funnel, Google's up above us. And Google is at first advantaged paid search over free search. So reduced profitability for us and all the OTAs, online travel agents like Booking and Expedia. But in addition, now put their own hotel flight experiences up above even the paid 
So we're competing with them in two new ways, and that's exacerbated because you go to a mobile world and the fewer, fewer and fewer items on the page. So you got Google's own branded stuff, you've got Google's paid stuff, and then free stuff. That just hurts our profitability. Challenge for us is to find new ways to monetize that 450 to 475 million unique visitors a month and the brand loyalty and value we add to them. And we've seen that to some degree in different ways, growth in what I call the equivalent of native advertising, growth in our business-to-business offerings, growth in our experiences, which looks a lot more like hotels did 15 or 20 years ago when I was the chairman of Expedia, when it was a fragmented world of hotels. That's consolidated much more. They're online. Here you have experiences much more fragmented. It's not always online. Us helping them get online is part of our success. Same thing with restaurants, but different ways to monetize. But the reality is hotels was a darn big category, which has fundamentally been challenged relative to the success we had. We're in a process of molting our business model. So when you look at your entire portfolio, is travel your biggest challenge right now to overcome that you're focusing on? Well, I think the other one would be Curate is feeling the decline of linear television and the QVC, yeah. QVC, Curate, QVC, HSN. Yep. The decline of linear television and the competition for leads there as well and the transparency around the internet. So we've tried to get on the right side of industry trends and where they're going. Those are both on arguably on tougher sides, challenge sides. Let me go forward now a little bit. And I uh, have interviewed in the past a writer named David Brooks from the New York Times who wrote this great book called The Second Mountain. And it's all about uh, in your life and your career after you've climbed the first mountain and you get to the middle chapters, which I would put you in. And, you know, you've got <laughs> You're a long being way very to go. generous. You've got a long way to go. You start to climb your second mountain. And some of the things that are important to you change a little bit and you have a broader perspective. You've obviously achieved success. And you look at things a little bit differently as you start climbing that second mountain. You recently signed a new five-year deal. So you're a uh, happy employee and CEO of the portfolio companies you have as a platform. What do you want to do the next few years? What's your second mountain climb? I think that's a work in process, Ari. You know, we go to Investor Day and we outline our themes for the year. I'm not sure I've got my personal ones outlined that well. I'm going to have to put uh, Shane working on that next. So You're only thinking one year ahead right now. There's things I'd like to get done, but I'm not sure they're uh, ready for prime time. Okay, I got it. I got it. Maybe you can talk a little bit now, sort of the fun segment of our podcast on like who your major influences are, who your mentors. I know you love John Mayer from an influence <laughs> perspective, but you know who do you uh, count as sort of people that have influenced you and continue to influence in your life? Well, I've been very lucky to have a series of great bosses. You know, Mike Brown, who was the CFO of Microsoft before me, was really helpful. Gave me a lot of exposure to Bill Gates, and Bill Gates was awesome to me. Going back earlier days, Bill Comfort ran Citicorp Venture Capital. Sometimes acerbic, always fun, always challenging, always interesting boss from whom I learned a lot. Obviously, more recently, John Malone has been a great mentor, partner, you know, senior partner to me. So I've been lucky in that sense in a, a lot of ways. You know, other people along the way, but long periods of time with those guys. Who's this faux Greg Maffei? And, <laughs> and is there a favorite tweet from the faux Greg Maffei? And maybe you tell our listeners about what the story is here. So I am very lucky. I tweet with some frequency, but not massively. There is a faux Greg Maffei who many people know who faux Greg Maffei is. I don't. I was offered to be introduced to him or her. I think it's a him. I said, no, I still believe in Santa Claus. I want to hold that, hold that out. But he has been very generous to me. We don't agree on everything, but when he puts stuff out, he's generally very positive. And he's very positive about liberty. He's very funny. 
probably has more license to say things than I do. <laughs> he uses it well. One well just the, to be clear, he's not you. He's not me. <laughs> it's not me. I sw- not swear a in a stack of Bibles, it's not me. The best is when um, somebody commented after I put some tweet out, I can't tell whether that's faux Greg Maffei or real Greg Maffei. <laughs> I love that. When people can't tell who it is because <laughs> mine is funny enough or at least it's <laughs> self-deprecating or amusing or whatever that they actually think it might be faux Greg Maffei. <laughs> I'm lucky though because a lot of other people have foes who are not nearly so nice. Yeah, and he's not on the payroll. He's not on the payroll. <laughs> if he is, he's doing it on his own time because I don't know who it is, honestly. But even some of our portfolio companies have foes who are ripping them, and I have been blessed. All right, good. Any uh, recent books you've read that you want to recommend or listen um, to? The book about Uber. Yeah. I finished that right after the beginning of the year, and I'm reading Jill Lepore's History of the United States. Oh, yeah. Do you listen or do you read? I'm reading it. I don't listen to many audiobooks. I listen to some. If I'm going to listen, it's probably more podcasts just because I don't find it as easy to listen to a book and then pick it back up. Right. I find that easier when I'm reading podcasts. It's enough duration. It's not like you're going to listen to it for a month or something like that. Yeah. Favorite podcast besides this one? I like F1. I like Beyond the Grid. I listen to the business intelligence ones Barry has. The most consistent that I would do is definitely the Formula One one. Yeah. It's our own book, talking our book of. Yeah. Yeah. We like Kindercast, talking our book. Okay. Fair enough. Favorite Democratic nomination for president? Not all of them are even Democrats, right? Bloomberg goes a Republican or an independent and Bernie's a Democratic socialist, so who knows? Yeah, it's not necessarily your side of the fence. (laughs) (laughs) I like Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. Best deal you've worked on? By what measure? Whatever measure you like, but I would assume returns. The return on SiriusXM in terms of IRRs is ridiculous because we got all our money back so early. You invested 400 million? We lent them 400 million. They paid us back after five months with fees and interest. We had money off the table. And what's it worth today? We bought some more later, but if you put aside that, if you just look at that stake, that's probably worth, I don't know, 23, 24 billion, something like that. From a $400 million loan. And as I said, we were negative 50 after five months. We had 50 or $65 million in our pocket. Wow. Charter's approaching that. Charter may pass it in terms of dollar value. I think we're up about 25, 26 billion on Charter. So what was the favorite deal to work on? They all have good things and, you know, they all have challenges. I mean, Formula One was a great deal in terms of structuring and getting stuff done. We had to overcome a lot of challenges. We were pretty thoughtful about what the seller's needs were and what the business needed. And so that was a very gratifying business too. And, you know, it, it propelled us in a new way. Um, Sirius and Charter were some ways more in our wheelhouse, our historical wheelhouse. And Formula One was opening a new door. And that's really been great. Yeah. Well, we've always talked about the fact that you're one of the few people in my life that encouraged me when I was at UBS to leave and to start this new chapter at Lantry, which I'm grateful for. And you were pretty adamant about it, actually. I remember going to lunch with you and at UBS had lost $32 billion in the subprime business. And I said, REA, mm-hmm. when they can lose $32 billion down the hall from you and you're not going to get paid and have freedom, just you got to find your own path. Yeah, that was clarity. I appreciate that. And more than that, even appreciate being able to work alongside you on some of those deals you mentioned. Yep. And also some of your portfolio companies like Live Nation and others, et cetera. It's been a great ride so far. And uh I look forward to your second mountain as you clarify that vision, coming back on and telling us about it. If you have any ideas, let me know. (laughs) Thank you for all the great work you've done. Thank you for letting me sit down with you today. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Congratulations. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.
Audiation.